Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Luke chapter 23. I'm going to cover verses 33 through 43 in this audio. These verses cover Jesus' first three hours on the cross. They are parallel versions of this incident. In Mark 15, verses 24 through 32, I've already discussed that in a previous audio, and shortly I will splice that discussion in here. That discussion covers all four parallel passages. Our passage here in Luke, there in Mark 15, 24 through 32, and also Matthew 27, 35 through 44. John 19, verse 18 through 27, also discusses the same critical first three hours of Jesus hanging on the cross. So my splice of Mark chapter 15, verses 24 through 32, begins now. Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Mark chapter 15. In this audio, I'm going to discuss Jesus' first three hours on the cross from 9 o'clock Friday morning to noon Friday afternoon. We're going to go through four Gospels and pick up all the details that are necessary in the parallel passages. We'll start in Mark chapter 15, verse 24. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Those are the Roman soldiers, the same Roman soldiers who had beat him, who had put a crown of thorns on his head, who had put a cast-off military jacket, or a robe on his body to make fun of him as a king, who spit on his face, who put a reed in his hand to make him look like a king. And they did all this in the praetorium. And then Pilate said, send him out. And so the soldiers took Jesus out and crucified him, Mark says, in a very summary fashion, crucified him. Well, let's turn to Matthew 27, starting in verse 35 and going to verse 36. We read this, after crucifying him, they, that's the Roman soldiers, divided his clothes by casting lots. Now, if when a victim was crucified, if his life lingered too long, the victim's legs were broken. John 19.33 says this, when they came to Jesus, that's the soldiers, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. So we know now that Jesus died on the cross. He did not just swoon on the cross and therefore was not really resurrected as a lot of heretics like to say. No, he was dead. We need to note also that Roman citizens were never executed this way. This type of crucifixion was a particularly shameful way of crucifying people like slaves or the basis of criminals, low-class people. And that's who Jesus was crucified with and as. Sometimes birds of prey would eat the flesh of the crucified criminal even before death had occurred. Now, what they would do in a Roman crucifixion, the... Soldiers would lay the crossbeam on the ground, the crossbeam that the criminal had carried to the execution ground. They would lay that crossbeam on the ground and then they would nail him to the crossbeam. And then they would lift up the cross, the crossbeam on the stake that was already kept in the ground. And then they would nail the crossbeam to the stake. Now, I'm going to give you a good description of what it's like to be crucified, written by a doctor. This account that I'm going to read for you is a condensation from an article or actually it might be a book, I'm not sure, called The Crucifixion of Jesus Christ by a C. Truman Davis, March 1965. Quote, At Golgotha, the beam is placed on the ground and Jesus is quickly thrown backward with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist, wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. The beam is then lifted in place at the top of the post, and the titulus reading, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is nailed in place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, that's Jesus, Jesus places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there is the searing agony of the nail through his feet. Again, excuse me, again, there is the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones through the feet. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are unable to act. 
Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself and upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-ending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues send their flood of stimuli to the brain. Jesus gasps, I thirst. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. With one last surge of strength, he once again presses his torn feet against the nail, straightens his legs, takes a deeper breath, and utters his seventh and last cry, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Apparently to make doubly sure of death, the legionnaire drove his lance through the fifth interspace between the ribs, upward through the pericardium and into the heart. Immediately there came out blood and water. We, therefore, have rather conclusive post-mortem evidence that our Lord died, not the usual crucifixion death by suffocation, but of heart failure due to shock and constriction of the heart by fluid in the pericardium. Matthew twenty-seven thirty-five says that they, after the crucifixion, they, the soldiers, divided his clothes by casting lots. It was the accepted right of executioners to claim the possessions of victim. That was normal. According to my NIV study Bible, Jesus' Jesus's possessions were probably an undergarment, an outer garment, belt, sandals, and maybe a head covering. Not much. The soldiers, when they did this, when they cast lots for the garments and split the garments up, they were unwittingly, of course, fulfilling the words of Psalm 22, verse 18, that famous Messianic psalm. And verse 18 of Psalm 22 says this, They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. That's a pretty straight fulfillment right there. Now, the they is more particularly described as four soldiers in John 19, verse 23. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. Now, why were they casting lots? There's some options here. One option is, is they wanted to see which soldier would get which fourth of the, of the garments. And that's fine, except for the outer coat. You can't divide the outer coat up. So it could be that they were casting lots to see who would get the seamless one-piece tunic, which could not be divided into force, and the rest of it could have been divided out amongst them. We go to verse 36 in Matthew 27. Then they sat down and were guarding him there. Why were they guarding him? Well, to keep the disciples from taking Jesus off the cross. Of course, there's no need to worry about that. They were very few, weak, and they didn't have any courage. As we know, they had scattered. But nonetheless, just in case, the guards were guarding against an attempt to rescue Jesus or to bury Jesus. That's one option. It could be there were the guards were, in addition, keeping the crowd from taking Jesus down. They had shouted, crucify him, however, and that means that they most likely not want to take him down. However, the week before, they were shouting hosannas and proclaiming him as a king, so maybe the crowd might change their minds again. The, crowd, the, the soldiers need to be careful to keep Jesus up there on that cross. Another thing that soldiers might be guarded against as they were trying to avoid any kind of miraculous escape. Jesus was famous for working miracles. Maybe he could work another miracle and get off the cross. This is John, John Gill's idea. Pilate was actually referring to this possibility of Jesus getting out of the tomb. On Saturday, the day after the crucifixion, the Jews went to Pilate and said, how about put a guard on the tomb so the disciples can't come steal the body? Matthew 27, verse 65 you, Pilate, have a guard of soldiers. Pilate told them, go and make it as secure as you know how. So that's one more argument for the resurrection. We'll talk about that when we get there, but the tomb was secure. No way the disciples would steal the body because it was guarded all the way from the crucifixion right here in verse 36 of Matthew 27. The body was guarded and it was guarded the next day, Saturday. Let's switch now and move over to Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 33. Oh, excuse me, not verse 32. We'll start with verse 33 and go to 30, verse 34. Verse 33 says this, When they arrived at the place called the skull, that's Jesus and the, his accompanying soldiers, 
when they arrived at the place called the Skull, that's Golgotha, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Why was the place called the Skull? We don't know where it is now. It cannot be definitely located. Some people try to uh, try to ascertain the origin of the, of the name. Some people say that it was a hill that looked like a skull. It could be that so many executions took place there. There are a lot of dead people there, a lot of skulls actually on the ground. They call it that, place of the skull, because of all the executions that were there. At any rate, the place was infamous. It shows to what shame and disgrace to which Jesus was brought. And by the way, we get the word Calvary from the word for skull. Calvary in the, the place of the skull in Latin is Calvi Capitus Aria, the place of bare skulls. And it's also called Golgotha in Aramaic. We go down to verse 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not what know what they're doing. And div they divided his clothes and cast lots. Now, here's a theological question. Well, before I ask that, before I ask the question, we need to point out that what an incredible act of mercy that Jesus going undergoing such inhumane, inhuman torture on the cross. And in the midst of all that pain, he's got enough mercy to say, forgive these murdering SOBs who nailed him up on the cross. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus overlooked their sins. He was constantly pointing out their sins, even up to the week before he died, especially on that Tuesday of Passion Week. But he asked God to forgive forgive these evil people, these murderers, for what they were doing. It's incredible the mercy that he had. question is, did God answer the prayer? Well, some of those, of course, who were persecuting Jesus might have believed later, but generally they didn't, and the judgment that Jesus had told the daughters of Jerusalem on the way to Golgotha, namely that they would be wishing that the hills would cover them and the mountains would fall on them because, and that their children had never been born because of the horrible judgment that was coming on them in AD 70 when the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem. So Jesus knew that, that there was going to be judgment for what had happened to him. And yet, nevertheless, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, actually, they knew they were killing an innocent man, but they didn't know he was the son of God. So they knew they were killing someone who did not deserve to die, but they didn't know they were killing the son of God. So I guess Jesus is saying, look, just hold them accountable for just an ordinary murder, but not hold them accountable for a homicide, but not for deicide. I'm not sure what he meant. And I don't think God answered that prayer. And you say, well, how could God not answer the prayer of Jesus? Well, I mean, when Jesus in, it was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it be thy will, take this cup away from me. God didn't answer that prayer either. So this is from Jesus' human aspect, I would say. God did not answer that prayer. We now turn to John chapter 19, verse 18. There at Golgotha they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. So we pick up another detail here that Jesus was in the middle of two other crucified ones. None of the four gospel writers dwell on the horrible physical sufferings that Jesus underwent. I just read you the description, a medical description of what happened during a crucifixion. The NIV Study Bible, Study Bible points out that Matthew, Mark, neither Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John talk about all the horrible things that Jesus underwent, which I wonder why they didn't, but they didn't. Now, the fact that Jesus was in the middle of two other criminals, that might have been meant as a final insult by the Romans. Yeah, you say you're the son of God. Well, we're going to put you up here with some of your compadres here, and you'll notice they're criminals. And so you're a criminal too. Well, for whatever the motive was for putting him up there, it's true that in his death, Jesus was identified with sinners. Because anybody who looked at these three crosses, two of them were sinners. So Jesus took his place amongst the sinners. Mark 15:28 says this, so the scripture was fulfilled, it says, and he was counted among outlaws. That was a quote of Isaiah 53:12. Mark is quoting Isaiah 53:12. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Now, these others, one to the left and one to the right, Matthew and Mark tell us they were thieves. Adam Clark says they probably belonged to the gang of Barabbas. Matthew 27:38. then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Mark 15:27. they crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Of course, one of them was not Barabbas. One of them was the thief who ended up going to paradise, as we'll see in a minute. One of them got saved. 
The other one did not, screaming blasphemies to the day of his miserable death. And, of course, Barabbas had been set free by the crowd. John 19, verses 23 through 24 say this, When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. And they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. They did this to fulfill the scripture that says, They divided my clothes among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. And this is what the soldiers did. That, that tunic that they cast lots for that was seamless and in one piece, then IV calls it an undergarment. It was a type of shirt reaching from the neck to the knees or ankles. I think I said just a minute ago that it was the fake military coat that they divided up, that they did not want to divide up, but that's not true. That had already been ripped off his back back there at Pilate's in the Praetorium in Pontius Pilate's Praetorium. This was his tunic they're talking about because Jesus was crucified naked, which is another fact. I didn't mention the shame of being hanging up on a cross with no clothes on, bleeding to death, asphyxiating to death. That undergarment, according to my NIV study Bible, was a type of shirt reaching from the neck to the knees or ankles. It was seamless and therefore too valuable to be cut up. That's why they had to cast lots for it to see who was going to get it. The other garments besides the tunic, they divided into four parts. Here we, and here we have an explicit reference to the scripture in Psalm 22:18 that says, They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. That psalm is specifically mentioned here in the narrative in John. Moving back to Mark chapter 15, verse 25. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Now this timing of the crucifixion presents a harmonization problem. I'm going to harmonize it for you real well. I just looked on a liberal Protestant website. I wouldn't have gone there if I'd have known it was a Protestant liberal website, but I read on this website that the gospel writers were not interested in the rationalistic type of accuracy that we now have in this scientific age, and we should not expect that, and it's virtually impossible to reconcile the accounts of Mark and John on the timing of the resurrection. Well, the problem is here in Mark 15:25, it says Jesus was crucified at 9 in the morning. But John chapter 19, verse 13 says Jesus was crucified at noon. Well, that is a clear contradiction, is it not? Well, actually not. Here's how you reconcile it. Well, there's actually two ways to reconcile it. I'm going to give you the way I like to reconcile it first. The liberal, aforementioned liberal website that I had has an unnamed English translation that translates the Mark passage in Mark 15:25. It was 9 o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. And then in John 19:13 it says, now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. Notice that John doesn't say he was crucified about noon. It was about noon. Well, so those two, the, first of all, let's talk about the, the English translation, 9 o'clock in the morning and noon. That is a total translator's choice because the actual Greeks in Mark says it was the third hour, and in John it was the sixth hour. There were two systems of telling time in Effect at the time, the Jewish way and the Roman way. The Romans started at 12 o'clock midnight, that's zero hour, and the Jews started at 6 o'clock in the morning for their zero hour. So here's the easiest way to reconcile it. Mark says it was the third hour in the morning when they crucified him. That's Jewish time. Third hour in the morning is 9 o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. Ah, but doesn't that make it contradict with John 19.13, which says this, when and 14. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. It was the sixth hour. The sixth hour. Now, Adam Clark says that, quote, commentators and critics have found it very difficult to reconcile this third hour of Mark with the sixth hour of John. Well, as I said, I'm going to give you my two. There's actually, I've, I've read a. Uh, an article on Bible.org said there's about four ways to reconcile it, none of which are conclusive. People disagree. One of the ways, or two of the ways, I thought were extremely weak, so I'm not going to mention those. I'm going to take the two strongest ways to reconcile it. Option number one, Mark has a copyist error. This is my NIV study Bible solution as well as Adam Clark's solution. The original should be the sixth hour in Mark, so the crucifixion was at the 
sixth hour, not the third hour. Now, this, of course, would make, if you're on Roman time, that would make the crucifixion at 6 o'clock in the morning, or if you're on Jewish time at 12 o'clock noon, and that's another issue as to whose time are we talking about, but at least they, they would be consistent between Mark and John. Now, the the copyist error problem, of course, gets into the matters of textual criticism. The number for three is a gamma, which looks like a capital F without the bottom stroke, and the number for six is the digamma, which is a capital F. So the only difference between the two numbers are that is that little second bottom stroke of a of what we would call a capital F. It's pretty close. So that would reconcile it. I like I prefer this way to reconcile it. And and it works this way. John in John nineteen fourteen when he said that the events of the second hearing of Jesus before John was at the sixth hour, that is Roman time, which starts at midnight. That means that Jesus that 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 Pilate sent Jesus off with by the soldiers to send him to Golgotha to get crucified. He sent him off at six o'clock in the morning Roman time. Now, if the crucifixion and the preparation for the crucifixion, the Via Dolorosa, Jesus carrying the, the uh, soldiers, getting the beam, giving it to Jesus, Jesus walking that long way, then they had to nail Jesus on the cross and, and so forth. If we assume that's about three hours, which I think is reasonable, that would m match Mark's nine o'clock in the morning time when Mark says, when Mark specifically says that Jesus is crucified. Note that John, in John 19, 14, does not say that Jesus was crucified at 6 in the morning. It just says it was 6 o'clock in the morning, and the context is his second examination of Jesus, and then him sending him off to crucifixion. So if you send him off to crucifixion at 6, Roman time, and John, Mark says he crucified him at 9 o'clock, Jewish time, you don't have any problem with the reconciliation. However, there is a problem when... You say that Pilate sent Jesus off the crucifixion at 6 o'clock in the morning because that means that a lot of activities before that second examination of Pilate had to take place before 6 o'clock. That's pretty early. Well, let's look at that. I'm indebted to Bible, an article by a Dr. James Davis of, on Bible.org. He mentions that sunrise, according to the National Oceanic Association and Administration Solar Calculator, sunrise on crucifixion day Friday would be at 525 a.m. That's assuming Jesus died at 33 A.D. Most people, I think, says it's 30 A.D., but in a footnote, Dr. Davis says that the sunrise time does not so much depend on the year as it does on the location and the day of the year not the actual year itself, but what day during the year it is and the location. And so the time is not going to be much different than 525. So we're going to say 525 is sunrise. And then we note that in John 19, in John 18, 28, Caiaphas led Jesus from his house, or the soldiers, the Jewish temple police led Jesus from Caiaphas's house to the praetorium, to the governor's headquarters, where Pilate was in the early morning. The Greek is pro-e, pro-e, the early morning. The early morning is dawn, pro-e means dawn, and astronomical dawn is the time when light, darkness disappears and there's a little bit of light. That's when the sun is just before the horizon. I think they define it as 24 degrees before the horizon, something like that. Now, that means dawn before, according to this Bible.org article, dawn would be about an, one and a half to two, excuse me, one to one and a half hours before the sun rose. And since the sun rose about a half hour before John says that he received, that Pilate received Caiaphas at six o'clock. So you're talking about, you add that one, let's just say one and a half hours before dawn, uh, before sunrise is dawn. And then from 5, 5.25 to 6 o'clock is another half hour. So you're talking about two hours, maybe one and a half hours for all these pre-crucifixion activities to take place. Namely, the Sanhedrin had to give Jesus to Pilate when sun, uh, as soon as it got light. Then uh, Pilate had to examine Jesus the first time. Then he sent Jesus to Herod to examine Jesus. That didn't take long because Jesus refused to answer. And then Pilate examined Jesus the second time. Now, all of that could have easily taken place within one and a half, two hours. So that's how I'm going to reconcile it. 
I admit this is this is one of the harder reconciliation problems in the scripture, but I think that'll do it. Or either one of those will do it if it's a textual error. But I'm just going to assume nine o'clock in the morning is when Jesus was crucified. Let's move now to Matthew chapter 27, verse 37. Above his head, they put up the charge against him in writing. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, it was customary to write the criminal charge upon a wooden board and nail it above the executed criminal's head. This card was also carried before the criminal as he carried his cross to execution. And after he carried it to his execution, they would, the soldiers would nail the cross, uh, nail the placard above the head of the criminal on the upright post of the cross. The purpose of this is so everybody would have an object lesson so the populace would know this criminal is dying for this crime, so don't do this crime, so the same thing could happen to you. Now, the Gospels all have different versions of this writing, so we have another harmonization problem, and liberals, of course, love to scream and holler at this contradiction, contradiction, the Bible's not inerrant, and so forth, just like they do on the time of the crucifixion. It's act, this is a little bit easier to reconcile than the time of the crucifixion. For example, we have this in four, this account, the description of the inscription in four Gospels. In Matthew 27, verse 37, the inscription said, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. In Mark 15, 26, it says, The King of the Jews. In Luke 23, 38, it says, This is the King of the Jews. In John 19, 19, Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Or you can see right off the bat, it's it's fairly close in English. But when we learn that the inscription was written in, th or assume that the inscription was written in three different languages, for example, it was in Latin, which is the official language of the Roman Empire. It was in Greek because that was the common language of culture and trade, Koine Greek. And because of the Hellenistic Jews who were present for the Passover, who spoke Koine Greek. And then it was also in Aramaic. That was the local language that the Hebraistic, and Jesus and the Hebraistic Jews used in Palestine. You got three different languages. Each inscription, of course, would differ slightly because languages don't translate word for word. Matthew quoted from the Aramaic because Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. Luke was quoted from the Greek because Luke was an educated Greek writing to a Greek audience. John quoted from the Latin. This was the only gospel to mention that Pilate put the sign up, and Pilate was the Roman governor. Latin was the official language of the Roman Empire, so John used Latin. And then Mark took what was common to the three inscri inscriptions, the king of the Jews. I've got a nice little picture here, which you can't see on the audio, of the of the three inscriptions in Aramaic, Greek, and Latin, and how these three inscriptions put on the placard above Jesus' head would have been quoted by the, th uh, by the different gospel writers and the accuracy of each gospel writer's report cannot be questioned. Now notice that the placard said that Jesus was the king of the Jews. Of course, <laughs> that was... That was the crime for which he was being executed. There was, uh, But the Jews didn't like that, of course, because they didn't think Jesus was the king of the Jews. So what Jesus, what Pilate is doing, he's mocking the Jews publicly, according to the NIV Study Bible, and I think they're right. Of course, of course, Pilate knew that Jesus wasn't their political king, but he wanted to make the Jews look stupid for them to be worrying about a crucified man being their king. This is the king of the Jews. There he is up there making mockery of them. John 19, verse 21 through 22 says this. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews. But he said, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. In other words, put up there that his crime was claiming to be the king of the Jews when he, when he wasn't. But, when, but Pilate, when you put up there, he's the king of the Jews. It, actually, it makes it look like he is the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. I'm sure he is thoroughly disgusted with the the Jewish leaders now, after what they've put him through, remember, he wanted to release Jesus all the way through that trial. Matthew 27, verse 38. The, then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. This detail fulfills Isaiah 53, 12, which says, Therefore I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil. That, of course, is talking about us Christians. Because he submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels. That would be the two insurrectionists. They were probably part of Barabbas' gang, but they were probably insurrectionists uh, to the left and to the right of him. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Jesus interceded 
Now, this interesting question is, when did he intercede for the rebels? He did pray for the thief on the cross that accepted him later. I assume it doesn't say he prayed for him, but I wouldn't be surprised if he did. I don't know why, but it says interceded for the rebels. So I don't know. I don't know how to handle that. I will point out that in Mark chapter 15, verse 28, it says the scripture was fulfilled that says, and he was counted among outlaws. There, Mark specifically says that scripture is fulfilled, and he refers to Isaiah 50 through 12. Assuming that verse is textually sound, the Holman Christian Study Bible brackets it out because of textual uncertainty, so we're not sure there. Now, here's some options as to why two criminals were crucified to either side of Jesus. It could have been ordered by Pilate that Jesus put, be put in the middle of two criminals. That would lessen the odium of him having crucified an innocent man. He said, well, yeah, I got one innocent, but two were guilty, so I'm not that bad of a guy. Or it could have been requested by Jews. And the soldiers agreed, sure, we'll put, we'll put Jesus in the middle. They didn't care. Why should they care? And, and, and the Jews would want to give greater reproach to Jesus by putting him in the middle of two terrible criminals. Now, the fact, though, that Jesus was in the middle of two criminals is very good symbolism because Jesus took on the sins of the world, and here we have a picture of him being crucified in the middle of criminals, and that picture is the very image of sin. Jesus had sin on his shoulders, as he, so to speak, as he bore the sins of the world, and he was surrounded by sin to the left and to the right. Now, the NIV has robbers here instead of two criminals. It's not apparent that people were crucified for mere robbery, so they were probably murderers, too. I didn't check the Greek to see whether the Greek is flexible enough to stand for robbers or criminals. I suspect that it is. In the Roman law, robbery was not a capital offense. So these guys that were being crucified next to Jesus were probably murderers. In other words, very, very serious sinners. Not only murderers, they were probably insurrectionists, maybe people who committed treason. Adam Clark speculates that they were part of Barabbas' gang. One of those criminals we'll read later, we'll get to it in just a minute, repented and asked to be in Jesus's kingdom. In Luke 23, verses 39 through 43, we read that one of the criminals hanging there began, hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuked him, don't you even fear God since you're undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. We now turn to John chapter 19, verse 19, and continue the story. Pilate also had a sign lettered and put on the cross. The inscription was, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Many, many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Of course, the reason John mentions that Jews read the sign is because they were offended by it. They didn't want this criminal this horrible man who was upsetting their apple cart to be called a king, their king. Now, I've already talked about how the inscription can be rationalized, uh, not rationalized, harmonized over the four Gospels. I mentioned that it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek when I was talking about one of the parallel passages, and I was just assuming that it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Here we, I, we see that John specifically says it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. I'm not going to go over that harmonization again. Basically, is that the Hebrew was for Matthew because he's writing to uh, Jews. The account in John, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, that was written in Latin because John is focusing on the actions of the Roman government, the Pontius Pilate, and so forth. The Greek was written by Luke, and Mark just took the, took the part of the four signs that was in common. And, of course, you've got language differences. When you've got three different languages, they don't translate straight, and so you're going to come up with slight differences. That's, e that's an easy harmonization problem. Now let's go down to verse 21 and verse 22 in John 19. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, What I have written, I have written. And you see what the Jews are doing. They want to just say that this was a false claim of him being the king of the Jews. Say that he said that I'm the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, No, we're going to leave it up there. <laughs> now he had to write something up there. Maybe he just was too lazy to write the whole thing up there, but this probably he was trying to stick it in the Jews' eyes. He was having to he was trying to show that there was a reason that Jesus was condemned. After all, by law he had to put the put something up there and he's not gonna put up there this man broke the Jewish law. That's not a reason to put somebody up on a cross according to Roman law. King of the Jews though sounds like he's a political seditionist and so that would cover cover him. So maybe that's why he did it. 
But the NIV Study Bible says probably what he, why he really did it, he was mocking the Jews. Jameson Fawcett and Brown is certain that he was mocking, ridiculing the Jews. But whatever his motives were, the placard emphasized the truth, as the NIV Study Bible says. Jesus really was the king of the Jews, so there was a little bit of irony there. They proclaimed to the world that Jesus was the king of the Jews. And, of course, that sign made the Jews look very bad because their king was crucified. And a crucified king sort of doesn't look too good. Now, when Pilate said, what I've written, I've written, he is probably thoroughly disgusted with the Jews by now, as John Gill says. And there's another reason he didn't change it. According to Adam Clark, Roman law forbade a sentence to be altered once pronounced, and the inscription was considered a sentence, a legal sentence. Once it's there, it's there. You can't change it. And so Pilate didn't change it. We now turn back to Mark chapter 15, verses 29 through 32. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, insults at Jesus, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would demolish the sanctuary and build it in three days. Of course, Jesus never said that, but they were passing along the libel, or the slander, I should say, that the, that the Jew, Jewish leaders had charged Jesus with. They continue, save yourself by coming down from the cross. If you're the Savior, save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him to one another and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Talk about putting somebody to the test. See and believe how many miracles have they seen in the last three and a half years? Resurrections, paralytics walking, incredible teaching that no scribe could answer. Oh, yeah, they, but they got to see some more. They want to see him come off the cross. For they're going, no, they wouldn't have. They'd have said it was the devil that did it. They wouldn't have believed him if he'd come off the cross. Even those, Mark continues, even those who were crucified with him were taunting him. We now turn to Matthew 27, verse 39. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads. Well, who would be passing by Passing by three people being crucified on crosses? People on the road, because crucified criminals were put close to the road so that more people could see the criminals, so that the criminals could provide object lessons, better examples to fight crime by. Now, these insults that were hurled at Jesus fulfilled Psalm 89, 52. How your enemies have ridiculed, Lord, how they have ridiculed every step of your anointed. At least some people say that fulfills that psalm. The shaking their heads, that shows derision and contempt, according to John Gill and Adam Clark. It shows that they were exulting in his, in his misery. Ha, ha, ha. They could either be shaking their heads sideways and saying, oh, what a pitiful sight. Or they could be shaking their heads up and down and saying, you got what you deserve, buddy. Doesn't really say, but it's not good. Matthew 27, verse 41, the passers-byers uh, passers are talking here and saying, the one who would demolish the sanctuary and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. The first charge, the one who would demolish the sanctuary, is referring to the false charge that the Sanhedrin in the kangaroo court, that previous early in the early morning hours, they had charged Jesus with saying that he would tear the temple down. That was a lie because Jesus never said that. For one thing, he was talking about his body, not the temple in Jerusalem. And for another thing, he didn't say, I'm going to tear it down. He said, if you tear it down, let's read the verse to show that. John 2:19. Jesus answered. This is a long time ago in his ministry, at the first of his ministry, three years or so before. Jesus answered, destroy this sanctuary and I will raise it up in three days. See there, you destroy, imperative, you destroy this sanctuary. He never said, I will destroy the sanctuary. And of course, he was talking about his body. So this shows that the Pharisees have probably been working on the crowd to turn it. There's always this interesting question as why a crowd that was shouting Hosanna to the king, to the Messiah, peace on earth. Oh, not, I'm sorry, not peace on earth, goodwill to men, but um, they were shouting Hosanna on Palm Sunday, just a few, the previous Sunday, and now it's Friday, the next Friday, and they're saying crucify him, crucify him. Don't give us, Bar don't give us Jesus, give us Barabbas. Well, it could be because the Leaders had been working on the crowd, offering them bribes maybe, or maybe spreading this slander that Jesus had said he was going to tear the temple down. Now, they're making fun of him because he's so weak, and they're saying, what kind of a king can't come down from the cross? If you're the son of God, what kind of son of God can't come down from the cross? Actually, John Gill points out, Jesus actually did something greater than that. He came up from the grave, and these people who were mocking him, they really made a bad career choice because Jesus has now over a billion people living that are following him. That's not counting all the people who believed in him for the last 2,000 years who've gone on to be in heaven with him. Jesus got the last laugh on this. We go to Matthew 27, verses 41 through 43. 
In the same way, the chief priest with the scribes and elders mocked him and said, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Of course, they wouldn't have. He has put his trust in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am God's son. Now, the people that are mentioned at the cross, they have obviously followed from the praetorium. They followed Jesus on the Via Dolorosa, probably straight out to Golgotha. These chief priests, scribes, and elders. Notice the Pharisees aren't mentioned. Some people have pointed that out. Well, I think the scribes, most scribes are mostly Pharisees, and Pharisees are mostly scribes, although they didn't entirely overlap. So I'm sure they were there, too, at the crucifixion. The chief priests were the temple authorities, the religious authorities that handled the ritual and the, and the sacrifices. The scribes were the teaching authorities, the the, the academic authorities in the religious law and the oral in the mosaic law and the oral tradition, and the elders were the political leaders from the Sanhedrin, the big shots. They're, and they've lost all sense of dignity now. You know, what kind of big shots, what kind of leaders? It's almost like they were Donald Trump, you know. You say, I'm going to jump on them. I'm going to mock them. I'm going to make fun of them as much as I can. So that's what they're doing. And, of course, even if Jesus had come down from the cross, they wouldn't have believed in him. They said, oh, it's fake. Oh, it's the devil. Sounds like cessation is talking about miracles today. Now, this last thing that they mocked Jesus with in verse 43, he has put his trust in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. That comes out of a psalm, Psalm 22, verse 8, that messianic psalm, which says this. He relies on the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him since he takes pleasure in him. And so what these mocking Jewish leaders were saying Hey, he relies on the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him. They quoted that part of the verse, but they didn't quote the last part. It says, since he takes pleasure in him, they say, huh, God doesn't take pleasure in him. What kind of a God would take pleasure in this kind of a Messiah, this criminal, this blasphemer who's nailed up on a cross as a criminal? Matthew 27, verse 44, in the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him kept taunting him. Now we know from Luke chapter 23, 39 through 40, not, that not both of the criminals taunted him, but only one. Luke 23, verse 39 says this, And one of the malefactors, which were hanged, railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? This is King James. I apologize for that. And... So we have another reconciliation. We've already had two harmony problems in this passage. Now we've got the third one. Why is it that Matthew says the criminals kept taunting him, where Luke says only one of the criminals taunted him, the other one being the thief on the cross that that day would be with Jesus in paradise, and who did believe in him? Well, there's several ways to re reconcile this. The first option is that this way of saying the criminals railed on him is a Hebraism, a Hebrew way of speaking. And here's a good example in Jonah 1.5. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the waves, the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship and he lay was fa and was fast asleep. Jonah went into the sides of the ship. You can't go into the sides of the ship. You're either on the port or the starboard side. You can't be on both sides at the same time. But that's just the way the Hebrews talk. Don't ask me why. I did find one translation that, instead of saying in the criminals, put it in the singular, the Mace New Testament, Matthew 27:44. One of the One of the robbers, too, who were crucified with him, treated him with the same reproach. And there's some other versions that translate it as one of the robbers instead of the robbers or the criminals. Most translations, however, had it as plural. But I like Gill's way of, of, of pointing out the language difference. The Hebrews just talk that way. Another option to reconcile is the penitent thief reviled Jesus at first, so both of them were taunting Jesus and then changed his mind. That's the easiest way to reconcile it, actually. Or a third way of reconciling it is Matthew takes one thief as representing the whole, that group of criminals, one of whom was represented by the guy that's taunting Jesus. This, this is an easy one. This is not like the time of the crucifixion, which you have to learn some astronomy and stuff like that. This is a relatively easy reconciliation. John Gill, or excuse me, this is my... My, my point, these guys, these criminals are on the verge of hell, and they're taunting the one who could save them from hell, and they're throwing how, another stupid career move. You're right up there next to the Son of God, and you didn't believe. And I'm sure that added to Jesus' sufferings, knowing that he's bearing the sins of the world. These guys were sinners, and they could be saved, and they weren't. All right, let's turn to Luke chapter 23, 35 through 43, and we'll be finished with 
Jesus on the cross for the first three hours. Luke 23, verses 35 through 37, the people stood watching and even the leaders kept scoffing. He saved others, let him save himself. If this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. All right, let's turn to Luke chapter 23, verses 35 through 36. To start off with, and we'll continue down to verse 43 in Luke chapter 23, and we will be finished with these first three hours of Jesus on the cross. Luke 23, verses 35 through 37. The people stood watching, and even the leaders kept scoffing. He saved others, let him save himself, if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, we pick up a little extra detail here. They called him, as they were mocking him, the chosen one, as well as, uh, well as the Messiah. Chosen one, this comes from the Old Testament. Isaiah 42.1 says this, This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. The suffering servant, of course, is Jesus, the Messiah. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. Now, was this... Oh, let me read another... Let, excuse me. Let me read another passage talking about the chosen one. This is in Luke 9.35. Then a voice came from the cloud. Of, this is at the Mount of Transfiguration, saying, This is my son, the chosen one. So that phrase is a little bit... It's not as common as son of David, but chosen one stands for the Messiah. Then I V. Study Bible says that Luke 9.35 at the Mount of Transfiguration possibly echoes Isaiah 42.1. Well, it sounds like it to me, the chosen one. Maybe it's not a slam dunk, but apparently it, it does mean that. Now, let's talk about why Jesus drank this sour wine. Now, first of all, we need to distinguish the wine mixed with myrrh that the women of Jerusalem gave G Jesus when he first arrived at Golgotha. We read about that in Mark 15, verse 23. They tried to give him, the daughters of Jerusalem, tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Matthew 27:34. they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink, which is some kind of sedative, just like myrrh was. But when he tasted it, it might, and it might be the same stuff in a different English translation, I don't know, because I'm using two different translations. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. All right, so there we have wine. Why were the women of Jerusalem giving him that wine with the myrrh? To kill his pain to dull his consciousness, to try to knock him out a little bit so he could, it wouldn't do much, of course, but it would help a little bit. But Jesus would not drink that. When he tasted it, he realized the wine was laced with myrrh, and so he, he didn't drink it. He didn't want to ease the pain. He wanted to be fully conscious so that he could, quote, endure with full consciousness the sufferings appointed for him, as William Lane, the famous commentator on Mark, points out. So he didn't drink that wine mixed with myrrh, but here at the cross, the other wine, this is a different instance here, he was given sour wine, and sour wine was a common drink for soldiers and laborers. It was cheap, it quenched thirst better than water, it was never given to anyone as cruel mockery, so this, they were not trying to mock him with that wine. Their intent was to keep Jesus conscious a little bit longer to see if Elijah would come. Maybe he'll jump down off the cross, maybe. Let's see if he really is the Messiah. And now Jesus drank that vinegar, that sour wine, he wanted to stay conscious as long as possible because that would refresh him and keep him awake a little bit longer. Of course, that prolonged his pain because he was in horrible agony for six hours on the cross. That just kept him awake longer, longer. may have kept him alive longer. He would take no shortcuts as he suffered the Father's wrath in order to secure our salvation. Now we go to Luke 23, verses 39 through 41. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. One more testimony to Jesus' innocence. Pilate said he was innocent. Herod knew he was innocent. Pilate's wife knew he was innocent. Everybody knew he was innocent, including the thief on the cross knew he was innocent. We go to Luke chapter 23, verses 42 through 43. Then he said, that's the thief on the cross, the penitent thief on the cross, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's a heck of a way to get saved, isn't it? Being crucified and right next to Jesus and getting saved. It'd be fun to talk with this guy in heaven. The word paradise, by the way, is another word for heaven. It's not a separate place from heaven. Some people get really, start logic chopping about these terms for the afterlife. You know, heaven, paradise is a different place come up with all these intermediate places and holding tanks and all this stuff. 
In the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, the word designated a forest or a garden. So heaven is, def- is described in terms of nature, which is kind of interesting. A lot of people who've taken these out-of-body experiences always talk about how beautiful the nature is up there. In the New Testament, according to my NIV study Bible, paradise refers to a place of bliss and rest between death and resurrection. It's used only in three passages here in Luke 23:43, the one I just read. Also in 2 Corinthians 12, 4, Paul was caught up into paradise. He heard inexpressible words, which a man is not allowed to speak. Revelation 2, 7, anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. It's heaven. That's what he's talking about. Paradise is heaven. Now notice Jesus talked to the thief on the cross, but he didn't say a word to those who were hurling abuse at him. The only one he spoke to was the one that wanted salvation. And that's probably a good application point today for Christians today. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Talk to the ones who want to get saved or who you think want to get saved. They're probably the ones that are being drawn by the Lord who are in the elect that Jesus came to save and who is chosen before the foundation of the world to save. So look for those guys. Don't waste your time on people who are going to turn and trample on you like dogs to whom you've thrown pearls or thrown something holy. Now, notice he, Jesus did answer charges that made him wrongly look guilty in, in his trials, those, what, one, two, three, four, five hearings that he had before he was crucified. If he realized it was hopeless, he just sat there mute and wouldn't answer. But then one time he was a juror under Jewish law, and he, and he answered then. So he, he would answer charges that were, for example, this about, are, you a, are you a political ruler that's going to start a revolt? He told Pontius Pilate, hey, my kingdom's not of this world. He would answer reasonable questions like that but as soon as people just started mocking him and throwing abuse at him he just took it like a lamb didn't, didn't he did not revile back as somewhere in the new testament it says i think it's peter now this thief on the cross that got saved today you will be with me in paradise i don't think he got baptized before he got saved which means that it's you don't need to go around saying that you need to get baptized in order to get saved i tell you there's a lot of that belief in china i People will tell you when they got saved, they'll tell you the day they got baptized. And I've had to tell several of these young converts that said, listen, you didn't get saved when you got baptized. Thief on the cross didn't get baptized. Uh, now, people who teach this wrong point of doctrine, they, they put a period after the day because, you know, there's no punctuation in the Greek. So the verse will say this, I assure you today, period, you will be with me in paradise, period. Well, that doesn't answer anything. If that's what Jesus said, when did the thief get baptized in order to make it to heaven? He never did. He died just shortly, right about the same time that Jesus did. Adam Clark said, This is senseless and impertinent, and only contrived to serve an apothesis. It's not agreeable to Christ's usual way of speaking and contrary to all copies and versions. In other words, it's absolute nonsense to say that you've got to get baptized to get saved. Now, now listen, I've baptized people. I've been baptized myself. I believe in baptizing people, but I don't believe that that's necessary to get you saved. Only thing in the Scripture is repentance, confess with your mouth, and belief. That's what gets you saved. Now, of course, when the thief of the cross mentioned the kingdom, I want to be in your kingdom, he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knew that that kingdom was not a political kingdom, obviously, because Jesus looked nothing like a political leader hanging up on the cross. So he knew. He knew about a spiritual kingdom. He had more spiritual insight than all the religious leaders of Israel. And that happens a lot. Some of the lowest people in the world, but down at the drug addicts, the thieves, the people in jail, they realize they're sinners and they realize there's another kingdom they get saved and they're in prisons everywhere or they're in drug rehab centers, wherever. They know that there's a spiritual kingdom and so they enter in. All right, I've returned from my splice of Mark chapter 15, verses 24 through 32. Now, in that discussion of Jesus' first three hours on the cross, I inadvertently left out three verses at the end of John 19, of the, pa- of the, of the passage in John 19, verses 25, 26, and 27, and so I'm going to put it in here. So starting with John 19, verse 25, we read this. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, or Cleophas, depending on the translation, and Mary Magdalene. Now, there's three Marys there standing by the cross of Jesus. They followed him to the crucifixion. Let's start with Mary Magdalene first. She appears in the crucifixion and resurrection story in all four Gospels, so she's extremely prominent. She's famous because in Luke 8, verses 2 through 3, 
we see that Jesus had cast seven demons out of her, or somebody had. I'll read that verse. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary called Magdalene. Seven demons had come out of her. It didn't say Jesus cast them out, but somebody did. All right, so there's, that's who she is. She's famous. She was the first person on the earth to see the resurrected Jesus. Now notice these women were standing by the cross, which means that they were close enough to hear his words. I always pictured formerly of the women standing way back, not to be seen, to be away from all the ugliness of the whole thing. But they were standing there close enough to hear Jesus. And I'm sure his voice was not all that loud, considering all the torture he was going through. So they were standing right there. And the Virgin Mary was the second Mary, the mother of Jesus. She stood there and watched her son be tortured to death. This fulfilled Simeon's prophecy, Luke chapter 2, verse 35. And a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. A sword will pierce Mary's soul. The prophet Simeon said when Mary was taking the baby Jesus to get dedicated in the temple, a sword will pierce your own soul. Can you imagine what it's like to see your own son brutally tortured, hanging on a cross, dying in front of your own eyes? She did it. So that's the two of the Marys. Now the third Mary was Mary, the wife of Clopas or Cleophas. Many people say that that's the same person as Alphaeus. So Mary, the wife of Alphaeus, and Alphaeus was the father of the lesser James, one of the apostles. Now, it's very difficult to know who all these three Marys are. John Gill goes on and on and on about the possibilities of who this Mary, the wife of Clophus, is. Sometimes some people say he's Mary's sister, which I don't believe, because why would somebody name their daughters Mary and Mary? It all depends on where a comma is placed, where you place a comma in the text. And, of course, the original Greek didn't have commas, so that's pretty iffy. But, in my opinion, the best guess is she's the same Mary who's the mother of James the Less and Joseph. In Mark 15:40, I'll read that. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. So there you have, in a parallel passage, looking on at a distance of the crucifixion, Mary the mother of James the Younger. So that's... I'm going to identify Mary, the wife of Clophus, and Mary, the mother of James the Younger. So we've got three Marys here watching. Now, Mark says they were looking at a distance, but the distance couldn't have been too far because they could hear the words of Jesus on the cross. We go to verse 26 and 27 in John chapter 19. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved, that's John, standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciples, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. That's talking about John. The reason John said the disciple whom Jesus loved, he was modest. He was writing the account. Didn't want to bring attention to himself. It sounds like Jesus is somewhat rude when he says, woman, here is your son. That's because it's a translation problem. It can mean madam. That's too formal. The NIV has got the best translation, in my opinion. They translate it as dear woman. Dear woman, here is your son. Ah, that sounds so much better than the Holman Christian Study Bible translation, which says, Woman, here is your son. I don't like the NIV for various reasons, but that is, in in this case, is a much better translation, in my opinion. Now, Adam Clark says that man, woman, were titles of as much respect among the Hebrews as sir and madam are among us. And, of course, sir and madam is a little bit formal here, so the translation is difficult, but I think dear woman works pretty good. Then he said to his disciple, then Jesus said to his disciple in verse 27, here is your mother. In other words, Mary was the mother of me. I'm going to be gone. So now she's the mother of you. And guess what sons do with their mothers? They take care of them. Care of them. In other words, what Jesus is saying, John, take care of Mary. And from that hour, the disciple, John, took her into his home and took took care of her. Now, Adam Clark's got an interesting speculation. He says that he thinks the reason why John was the only disciple not to die an early death because God preserved John so he could take care of Mary during the span of her natural lifetime. It's a good theory. might be true even. Now, Mary could not really go home. Jesus' brothers at that time did not believe in him, according to, to the NIV Study Bible. We read in John 7, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. So she's got a bunch of unbelieving brothers. She knows who Jesus is. She's a believer in him as, as the Messiah. Her husband, Joseph, is probably dead by now. He doesn't show up in, in the gospel narratives. From, remember when the family went from Nazareth to Capernaum to deliver Jesus from all the crowds because they thought he was beside himself? Well, Joseph wasn't there. So that makes people reasonably conclude that Joseph is dead. So Mary is basically in a bad way. 
But Jesus takes care of her. And he says, John, you take care of her. And he did. So therefore, ladies and gentlemen, I am now finished with the discussion of Jesus' first three hours on the cross. That's Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 43. And our next audio, will look at just three verses in Luke 23, 44 through 46, which cover the three hours of darkness of Jesus on the cross from noon to three o'clock. Hope you enjoyed this audio. 